Welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great discussion with my new friend, Bibin Cherian. And we talked about the future of optometry. We talked about opto- optometry students, student loan debt. Uh, we talked about state government relations committee and in the importance of having a good, um, a good strong association and our relationships with our legislators and continue to build that over time. So I had a ton of fun with this conversation and I hope you enjoy it as well. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review, and as always, support those who support us. Bibin, I've I've wanted to talk to you on the podcast for a long time. I've been doing this podcast since January, and I do a weekly podcast, and um, and so it's it's really exciting for me to see you here at the State Government Relations Committee TPC conference. And you and I have a ton in common, right? Like we both went to Northeastern State University. Um, you have kind of gone through the chairs of AOSA. And, um, and so what I'd like you to kind of describe to me is first, you know, kind of give me your background. I think um, listeners kind of want to hear about who is kind of the up and coming people within our profession and what are the kind of things you're thinking about? How did you decide you wanted to be on the board of trustees of the AOSA and then on the executive committee of the AOSA? Uh, so what are your thoughts about that? Okay. So first off, I guess my background, um, it was during undergrad. I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and I was debating between, cause I knew I wanted to do something in the healthcare field, just not sure, um, what exactly. And I remember shadowing an optometrist who, um, is actually now the president of the uh, Oklahoma Association, Dr. Selena McGee. And I remember seeing her and talking with her and kind of, um, that was kind of like a push for me um, for optometry. And so um, I shadowed a couple more and then decided, you know, optometry is the field that I want to pursue. Uh, it's funny because I always tell people the week uh, or like the summer before I actually started optometry school, I remember thinking, you know, did I make the right decision? Is this something I really want to do? But once school started and once I got into like even methods lab and started everything about optometry, I fell in love with. And so coming from Oklahoma, so I, I wasn't in Oklahoma. So I, when I applied to optometry school, I applied to a bunch of different schools. And my dad said, you know, you got to go check out Oklahoma. He knew yeah. Bobby Christensen and, and he asked Bobby what Bobby thought about it. And um, so I had already gotten into the school I thought I was going to go to. And um, then I applied to Oklahoma. So did you... Um, did you know I'm only going to go to NSU or did you kind of spread the cards around? <laughs> no, I actually was not. Oklahoma, just because it's in Tahlequah and it's a small town um, and away, far, far away from home, I didn't have anybody that I knew in Tahlequah and that was actually not my first choice. Um, I was thinking of going to Houston. And so um, I got the interview to Tahlequah and then they said, you know, you have to um, submit a deposit within two weeks of, um, got the interview and they said, hey, submit a deposit if you're wanting to come and my interview in Houston was three weeks away mm. so I had to make that decision and I talked to my parents and um, with as a student in state tuition I was like you know what I'll try it and so I went with Tahlequah but four years later I'm 100% I'm glad I did that and 100% would do it all over again yep I, I think a lot of people would say that about any school but they would be wrong unless they went to NSU. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, but, but, but so, uh, I think there's a couple, the reasons that, that I, I suspect you probably feel the same way I do is that, you know, in, in going up through leadership positions within the AOSA, mm-hmm. um, as on the board of trustees, one of the things that I always saw, and I'm not sure if it's still the same way, but I'm going to ask you is that some schools were really almost anti 
organized optometry where it made it actually hard. Those AOSA trustees, they had a really hard time having the commitment of those meetings. Whereas in, in Oklahoma, that wasn't the case. We were really encouraged to do those things. So a twofold question. First, are you still seeing other schools that are um, that are kind of pushing students away from being involved? And two, are you still getting encouraged at a high level from um, from what you're from the other faculty and and um, and uh, the leadership within the within NSU? Right. Great question. So that's one thing um, we're trying to address this year too. Um, is with Oklahoma, I'm I've been blessed with uh, our faculty, our administration. They're very pro. Um, organized optometry. They want students to go to state association meetings. They want us to go to um, national meetings. They want us to go to as much as we can and be involved because they realize that um, optometry is a very legislative profession. And if we're not involved and if we don't start becoming involved as students, we kind of fall off as we um, graduate, become doctors. One of the things with other schools right now, um, there are some schools that I don't know if they're anti it. It's just that they um, won't let students out of clinic or may not let um, they just don't have off days built in for students to attend national meetings, attend um, organized optometry. And I think that is a downfall in a way, something that uh, we're hoping to address, something that we're hoping um, we can come to kind of an, uh, something that we can do for students, because I think it is important for them to be involved, be able to go to meetings. How do you work toward that? What, what types of things are you trying to work? What organizations are you working with? Who are you working with to try to get those schools to be more lenient? Yeah. So um, first off, AOSA and AOA have a great um, connection. And so one of the things is with AOA faculty liaisons, we're trying to connect to different uh, leaders at the schools and say, hey, this, um, first off, we want you guys to see if um, you can make an initiative to kind of move that forward along with students, the trustees and the trustee elects um, at, our, at the schools along, and any of the other student leadership to see if you guys can reach out to your um, administration. Because one of the things from before is our national meetings, they used to just think of it as a party, just, hey, people are just going to hang out. There's no no good uh, reason for students to go. It's just more or less a fun hangout. But nowadays, that's completely different. There's education there. There's uh, pop-up sessions. Um, there's advocacy that students can get involved in, things that they can kind of learn. Um, so it's more of an educational component. Definitely still students have an ability to have interactions, network, um, have a fun time, but it's also a lot of educational component that um, I think people don't realize that th that's, that there is there. And so that's one of those things we're trying to um, kind of spread the word on that. Yeah. And, and I think, I think of all of those things, it, you know, it's, it is from a longevity of the profession standpoint, probably the most important still is going to be the networking. You know, I always find it, it's interesting. And I've had conversations a new, numerous times recently on the podcast where there's this disconnect where students want when I, when I come and speak to schools, students want private practice. So right. if, I ask, if I ask a whole entire classroom, 150 students, who wants to be in private practice? Everybody's hand goes up. Right. But the reality is, is that's not what happens. And so whether or not you want to practice in private practice or you want to be in commercial practice or you want to practice in ophthalmology, it should be because that's what you want to do as opposed to that's just the option you had. Right. And I think one of the things that a lot of these schools need to um, – continue to keep in the back of their minds is that that networking um, really allows for a lot of flexibility to what you want to do. I mean, the reality for, for you, Bibin, is that because you are showing up, right, and you're, right. And you're playing hard, um, you're going to be fine. 
you're going to have a job. You're going to find, <laughs> I mean, you're, you're going to find a practice that, that wants you in it. Right. You'll figure out a way to, to be an owner of that practice if you want to. And everybody else could do that. Right. <clears throat> if given the opportunity and if they're not too many roadblocks, right? right. And if they want to work hard enough. So, um, so the networking aspect of it is still so, so important. Very important. Yeah. When you, um, when you moved from like board of trustees mm -hmm. and you thought, okay, well, somebody's asking me to run for president, um, what went through your mind and how did you make that decision that it would be something that you'd, you'd want to serve and continue to serve in that capacity? Yeah. I, I honestly was kind of nervous coming in cause, um, the, the presidents before, um, uh, for AOSA, Andy Mackner and, um, Annabelle Storch. I remember I was just like, ah, that's a, like, it's a, it's a tough follow. And that's something I didn't want to take this position and not be able to, um, give it my all and actually make a difference. And so I remember that was one of my biggest hesitations. Um, I talked to some of my friends on the board, um, on the AOSA board. And, um, and then I also talked to the executive council at the time. Um, and I was just like, you know, these are my hesitations. This is why, um, I, I'm interested in, I want to, you know, continue moving forward and try to, um, help with the AOSA, but that's kind of my hesitation. And I remember talking to John Beeson, who was the, um, treasurer at the time. And he kind of changed my mindset. He's like, you know, like everybody kind of starts off small. Don't worry about, you know, like you might think that you're not a great speaker. You might think that you had all these problems. And so that's, and then kind of after having the talk with him, I kind of, uh, decided to move forward and yeah. And it's great ever since do you know what the number is i i, I don't i haven't followed really because uh, -huh. uh but do you know over the last 20 years how many presidents have been from northeastern state university i want to say four to five because i know there's four for sure i think there would have been five so i know that if you go from 2000 on we had um ryan parker yep chad fleming um caleb schoonover oh me um Tyson Allard. Yeah. Right. So there's five right there. Gotcha. Okay. And then, so you might be six. Okay. Was there somebody in between no, I Tyson think and you? Nope. So six. Yeah. So six over, and, I, and I'm probably making Chad older than he is and Ryan <laughs> older than he is, but probably over the last 18 years, uh -huh. six. Yeah. That's pretty wild. That's awesome. From, from the smallest school in the country. Right. Uh, and I think that really comes down to the fact that the faculty and the administration in the school really fully support Absolutely. It. What is yeah. your, what's your push? I remember, you know, in our day, in mm -hmm. our day, like I'm an old guy, uh, you know, student debt was still kind of blooming, but it wasn't nearly what it is right now. Right. So that was a big push. But, you know, as a executive council, you sort of set an agenda. What do you want to accomplish this year? You already talked about, you know, accomplishing um, better relations with some of the schools. Right. What's another big one that you've got? So... This year, I mean, this is kind of a special year, but for 2020, um, just going into 2020, how do we, because I know one of the things is optometry as a whole, how do we educate the public? But even for students, how, what, what are we going to do in 2020? How do we make our presence known in 2020? And so it's kind of a special year. Um, that's one of the things we're focusing on. Another one we're focusing on is um, pre-optometry students. You know, sometimes uh, we have a pre-optometry membership, but sometimes we want to reach, we haven't really... Um, Went, explored that as off as much as we uh, could have, and so that's another focus we have. But even for students, like uh, yeah, not only optometry is meeting, but how do we reach out to students um, 
in their day to day. So is there something else that we can do to help them? Is there meetings that they go to? Maybe not national level, like optometry is meeting something that we can go to maybe on a more local level, but just let them know that, you know, AOSA is the student organization, the student organization for you and to help them basically in any way that we can, because again, our mission is to empower students to thrive as doctors of optometry. So any way we can do that. So as part of our profession, I think one of the things, you know, there's this disconnect a lot of times between, you know, the, the rank and file OD that's just practicing seeing patients and, and really trying to do a great job seeing their patients. They're supporting their profession, you know, their members, they're, they're giving donations to PAC. <clears throat> but a lot of times we, we tend to, it's easy to ignore the future of our profession through the students. Right. So um, we, and we then have a lot of conversations both online, like, like the podcast, but then mm -hmm. also offline where there's a lot of fear that's going on, um, within how am I going to sell my practice? How am I going to transition my practice? So that's kind of coming from our end is what, what's stressing doctors out. What are stressing students out? What are they concerned about? What, what, um, what types of things are you hearing? Yeah, Dr. Wolf, I think you mentioned it earlier, but student loan debt, I know <laughs> for most students, um, numbers are astronomical now. I mean, they're going up, uh, but right now student debt is one that no matter what, uh, campus you go to, that's one of the, uh, biggest concerns for students. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, I think studies have shown that more students, like, there's less students that are going out and starting, a, uh, just starting, a, opening up a practice or um, going in and buying a practice right off the bat. And I think one of the things is just because of all the debt and all the, um, all those financial fears, they kind of take a little bit more time, kind of um, set aside a little bit more money before they even go into buying a practice. And I think that's biggest concern there is definitely financial for students. What are the concerns? So if that's the case, uh -huh. um, you know, I was talking to last week, um, or I guess it'll be a few weeks ago now. Um, when I, when I was in Vegas for vision uh -huh. expo West, I talked to Kristen O'Brien who, uh, works with vision source next. Okay. And one of the things she says is that the, the people that she works with with Vision Source Next and also with Eye Care Advisors uh -huh. is that people are kind of coming out of school, they have all that debt, right. and then they're sort of trying to get a handle on that debt, <clears throat> and then, then you know, five years, six years, seven years down the road, they're they're deciding they're going to open their practices. How do you get a handle on that debt? I mean, do you guys have have you thought through that? Has anybody thought through that well, or have a program to? And, to I, help them. I, I don't know. That's one of those because um, I think any optometry school you learn everything about optometry, which is amazing. But one of the things that I feel like most schools lack is kind of the either the personal budget or financial aspect and practice management. I think um, Alexa Von Tobel, she spoke at optometry's meeting um, a couple years back, and yeah. I remember it was a huge. Students loved it because it's it's a financial part that we don't get that um, on a regular basis. We don't hear that. So unless you're have the time somehow to um, read and do research on your own, you don't really get that financial aspect. Um, and so I think right now students don't get that. Um, and so that's one of those things that um, at our pop-up sessions, at ed any sort of education thing that we can, we try to give something to fi for financial. And I think that's um, one of the most, uh, like one of the, one of the biggest draws for students. Um, as far as how, uh, I'd, I'm trying to budget and trying to figure out a way to um, pay off my loans as quick as possible, but I think everybody does it different. And I don't know if um, there's a good, like there's a great solution right now. But. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I think it's a big challenge and, and I don't know that anybody has a really great solution. Mm -hmm. You know, just to give you perspective, when, when I graduated in 2008, 
Um, I didn't have any undergrad loans right. and my wife didn't had, she had a, I think an eight to 10,000 undergrad loan. Uh-huh. And, um, and then, uh, so we came out from NSU, I had a hundred thousand dollars of yep. student loans. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, yeah. Right. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. It, it, you know, in hindsight, it's like, it, it was, it was a burden. Right. Um, and, and I'm not, I'm not sell- telling you that because cause I look at when I hear numbers like two hundred fifty thousand, two hundred thousand dollars, that's insane. I mean, it, right. it, it's insane. And so what we did <clears throat> was, do you know who Dave Ramsey is? Yes, we yes. Dave Ramsey did. Right. Uh, so so we went and we just said, look, um, we weren't as radical as Rice. So there's two things. Uh, um, both are Dave Ramsey. Um, one is we didn't quite rice and beans it, but mm-hmm. but you know we were con- we, we didn't. We, we were very conservative with, with the house we bought, right. with the cars we drove. Um, and, uh, and then, but we hustled, yeah. you know, like, like I, I was talking to, again with Kristen and I, I, I said, well, Kristen, you're a hustler, you know? And I, and she, I, I didn't mean it in, in like a bad way. Right. You know? <laughs> I mean it in all the good ways. And, um, and so I think that's the other side of it is that, uh, there is this perception and I'm not sure that it's pre- prevalent in, in, uh, students right now. I, I don't know, but I think there is this perception that, um, I'm an, I'm a doctor. So I'm going to work doctor hours. Um, and people are going to want to just be clamoring at the door to, to come see me. And, and that's just not the case. I mean, you can be great. You can be a great doctor, but there's great doctors down the street. Right. And so, um, so, you know, you, you work six or seven days a week and you, and you figure out other ways to, to pay off those loans. But, um, that's what we did. And it took us about, uh, two and a half years to do it. But I'll tell you, I mean, you know, 200, $250,000 is a big, a, a lot different story. Right. But, uh, it does, if, if you can be disciplined through that process, I look back on those two and a half years and it's with fondness, you know? Yeah. And, and now because of those, you know, that suffrage is so to speak, you know, you're on the other side of it and then it's like, it's done. It's gone. You don't have to think about it anymore. Right. Um, so there, I think there's different ways to do it. I think the Dave Ramsey way worked for us, but at 250, you know, you're talking, I guess five grand, you know, five grand a month to try to chip away at it. Right. What are they telling you guys um, in in relation to like some of the debt forgiveness programs? What are the, what's the advice you're being got, given on that? I. Um, I honestly don't know a lot about the debt forgiveness because I know for me personally, I just want to pay it off quick. Uh, three years is my kind of my max. Um, for you. Yeah. And so, but I know with the debt uh, forgiveness, I think it's 20 years. Um, and so I don't know a whole lot about it. I just know I don't want to have a loan. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to be paying off a loan for 20 years in addition to everything else I'll be paying off. So that's why I, I personally don't know a whole lot about the yeah. loan forgiveness part. Yeah. Of it. I, I don't know much about it either, but I know some people who have, who are on that path because right. it's just so much. They like, they don't ha- see any other pathway to yes. it. Um, but I've also heard that, you know, obviously I'm not a tax, a tax yeah. guy, but when they forgive that uh-huh. you owe taxes on that, it's basically a gift. So, you know, you still oh, have I mean, a big tax liability and instead of having a student loan company coming after you, now you got the IRS wow. if you can't pay for the taxes. I did not know that. So I'm not sure exactly how that works, yeah. but, um, 20 years compared to three years, just real intense. Seems yes. like a, uh, a different prison sentence, right? Yeah. And they say you already are living like a student. Just keep living totally like a right. student. Totally yeah. right. And so that's where, that's my goal. Just keep living like a student until, I mean, for 15, 10, 15 years and then. 
let it um because what's the quote work hard right now and do things that nobody else will do right now so you can hey you are things. you're a dave ramsey guy too <laughs> yes. that's awesome live live like no one else so later you can live like no one else right exactly um so then uh when you think about uh how that impacts the ability for somebody to practice the way they want to practice because like i said before i i don't really care if somebody wants to practice um in any setting i think that's great they should do that right but um but i don't think i, I don't want them to be forced to do that because they've they're just going to make the decisions they're going to make so what are you seeing when you talk to students and, and their transition into practice um how is that going for them and how are they um actually making that transition into the practices they want to be in yeah, so I know for, because um, I've talked to the 2019 graduating class from Oklahoma, and um, a lot of them like went straight into practice, and they said, you know, there's a couple of cases here and there, but for the most part, um, training has been well. Like, they they felt well-trained at uh, NSU, and so now they're doing fine in practice. I think one of the big things for students is uh, whenever they're looking for a job, like, as you were mentioning, um, sometimes private practice, even though maybe in the long term it might be good, right in the initially they might not be able to um, have as much of a salary as they would if they went to a different uh, like a corporation yeah and so you kind of are in just because of the amount of student loans again things like that you kind of lean towards something that may in the long term not be as beneficial but at least right now it looks very enticing and so um, i think that may be another reason why students kind of or many students go towards corporation or uh, private equity whatever it may be um, that it can offer a much higher salaries like initially um when you're when you don't really think about buying into a practice kind of long term and maybe they won't be able to offer that salary right now yeah yeah i mean when i think about um there were times and so so as you know i went into practice with my my dad and parents mm -hmm. and they they basically plugged me in full time five days a week when when i had enough patience for maybe one day a week but they made sure that I had the opportunity to come into the practice. They took some losses. And in hindsight, I, I mean, I, I, um, I was talking to A.B. Chatterton about this a few weeks prior. And, um, and I think I've articulated this to my parents. But, but the reality is, is that I'm so grateful that they were able to do that. And I was also so, at the time, I couldn't really fully understand what they were doing. I mean, they, they actually were taking a, a small loss, right? Like yeah. I was paying for myself, but I wasn't making any other money. And I probably wasn't paying for myself for at least a few months, right? Mm -hmm. And this, mind you, was in 2008, right before the market goes oh, down. Wow. So, um, so I, I say that to say that uh, I knew at the time I could have probably made 150% of what I was making at the office. Right. Um, and there were times that I really like looked at, okay, well, is this really where I want to be? Cause I, cause it's easy to say, well, I could do the same thing someplace else and ignore the fact that my parents were, um, you know, making sacrifices so I could in the future. Right. But I trusted them. Right. I, right. I, I mean, you, you, I, I'll tell you, I looked, I thought about those other avenues mm -hmm. and, um, and I, I trusted them. Uh, I, I stuck with the program, so to speak. And the payoff has been exponentially great, right? I mean, right. just I look back, I look at, at the the lifestyle that we have right now, and not, it doesn't just mean money, right? Right, right. The ability to come to meetings like this, the ability to take my family on, on trips when I want to because I have the ability in my practice to say it's my practice. Right, and that's um, awesome. Yeah, so, so like 
11 years down the road, you know, probably the shift for me would have been maybe five to seven years out, you know, where it was all of a sudden like, yeah, this, I'm seeing this. Right. Um, but I don't know, I, I guess, I guess if I could give any words of encouragement is say that path, right? That's what you want. It's going to be in, there's going to be other things that are going to probably entice you. Right. Um, but stay that path because in five to seven years, you'll be able to look back and be like, holy cow. If I would have, if I would have taken this other path, yeah, the path greater traveled. Right. Um, man, it, it would be a totally different, a different world right now. Right. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer for the masses. Yeah. Do you have any, um, anything that you wish you knew when you were a student? Um, or even maybe your first year, second year out, whether it be like a clinical pearl or just in general financial or anything. Oh yeah. I think there's, there's probably a ton of clinical pearls. I, I, I think, um, you know, I think you can't be afraid to make mistakes. You know, you, you know, it's easy to want to be perfect. Right. Um, I, I was really fortunate. I, I don't know if I've told Jason Ellen this, but if he ever has, if you ever talk to him, have him listen to the podcast. Do. Uh, he probably doesn't. He, he's such a guy on the go that he probably wouldn't spend the time listening to it. But, you know, he allowed me to make mistakes. You yeah. know, as a as a clinician educator, he allowed me to make mistakes where I didn't realize he was allowing me to make mistakes. Like when I say make mistakes, like making mistakes in in a way that is in a safe control environment. I'm not making too big of a mistake, right? right. But like I'm making enough of one where when I see that that patient back. It's like, yeah, that's an, that's an okay treatment, right? It's what, it's like what normal people would do. Right. But like, if you want to be excellent, Dude. this is what we do. Right. Yeah. So, so that allowed me to, to realize that, um, that there are to gain confidence in saying, okay, well, yeah, let me figure out like, what's the standard, but then we'll, how can we even be better? Right. And, um, and then, you know, I think the other thing is constantly, constantly, um, figuring out ways to do things better in your practice, processes, um, management of different diseases. I think when I look at practices that are sort of stagnant, doctors that are, um, that are uh, not happy with their lot in life, um, I, I ask them, like, what's your practice? Like, I think, what's your practice like? You know, uh-huh. and, and for me, I don't think I'd be happy if I was just prescribing glasses and contact lenses all day. Oh, I, not at all. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be happy when you can incorporate, um, you know, orthokeratology, scleral lenses, glaucoma care, macular degeneration care, dry eye care. I mean, all at a very high level, it doesn't mean just dabble in them. Right? right. And it doesn't mean you have to do them all at once, but if you do them well and kind of master this protocol, right, here's my protocol for patients with myopia control. Right. Okay? And we got these and we're going to master that. And once you master that, you don't just say, yep, we're good. You sort of say, all right, how are we going to refine this? You know, what are the different, um, the different, uh, online pharmacies that we can use to get different concentrations of atropine in that case. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think that's the thing that you want to surround yourself with other people that are constantly pushing those limits. Because if you're not, and you're not having an open communication with them about the details of how they're running their practice, uh, and the details of how they're doing those different things in their practice, then then I think you'll wind up um, five, ten years down the line feeling like burnout. Yeah, totally. Exactly. And I think that uh, kind of go, going with your point there, I think that's why even personally for me coming to meetings like, yeah. for example, SGRC, TPC or any of 
um, any meetings, I feel like every time I come, I feel rejuvenated. But anytime I go back to clinic, because sometimes you get kind of in the lull of clinic, like, hey, this is uh, for students every day, you're in clinic. And um, sometimes you just kind of kind of fall into that same old, but then you kind of step back, you go into a meeting with uh, colleagues, and it's just amazing kind of hear different perspectives, hear different stories. I feel like every time I come to a, any sort of meeting, I come back and I'm like, All right, I'm ready to like go back at 110% again. And it's, I think, and yeah, I think that's awesome. I think it's important. Yeah. So, so we'll, we'll talk about then SGRC TPC. So just to give, I know a lot of our listeners don't know what state government relations committee does or third party, com- uh, um, center does but uh from a standpoint of of state government relations committee what what would you describe what you've what you've gone through so far the first day so uh so for me i know coming in um i had talked to annabelle and with third party payers for students it kind of goes a little bit above our heads a little bit um actually quite a bit uh (laughs) but but i think what's important is hearing the advocacy portion um hearing that you know you have to reach out to legislators everything we do is um a completely legislative profession um, hearing even the panel this morning, um, there's states that have been able to pass scope expansion. There's states that got close and didn't get it. And so um, it's crazy to know that there's some states who can't prescribe the same things that we're able to prescribe in Oklahoma and, um, and not even able to do the same procedures. Um, I was able to do a YAG capsulotomy a few weeks back, and I thought it was the most amazing thing. And so to think that some states, I mean, in sta- more states are kind of climbing up to that, but for the states that are not able to, I think that's um, that's one of the things that like students across the country, they need to be aware that um, that's the importance of advocacy, importance of knowing to speak to your legislators going out. And again, they're just like us, which is one of the hardest concepts to kind of uh, think through is, hey, these legislators are just normal people, just everyday people. Um, and I think that's one of the things I've learned at SGRC kind of just um, basically uh, reinforce that for me. Yeah, yeah. So what has been, um, what's been your other favorite, so besides SGRC, of course, mm-hmm. what's been your other favorite meeting that you've been able to go to or interaction that you've been able to have that's been illuminating as uh, president of the AOSA? Yeah, I think optometry's meeting is the big one. And I think it's just seeing students, because that's the uh, one with most students across the country getting together. Um, it's our, na- it's the uh, optometrist meeting is the, the student meeting. And so um, for me, it's been OM. And I think just seeing students all across the country get together, um, seeing them in education at the residency summit, and then also even the events at night, for example, the AOC Optometry Student Bowl, uh, powered by Essilor, that one I think was a, uh, just seeing students across the country, I think that's that's probably my favorite meeting, yeah, uh, by far. Yeah, and so yeah, very cool. So you talked about the residency forum, and um, you and I offline were talking about externships and residencies, and so you're planning on a, a residency with Larry yes. Henry, is what you're hoping for, yes. right? Yes. And Larry, I think trained. Uh, I think uh, Jason Allen did his residency with Larry Henry. Gotcha. And so, um, so tell me kind of what your aspirations are as far as uh, triad with your externship. What are you looking to gain there? And then uh, I think probably you asked me, what's the mo- why didn't I do a residency? Why mm-hmm. would you do a residency? Uh, I think if you're going to do a residency, um, you want to have a definitive thing you want to gain from that residency. Definitely. And so I think the mistake a lot of people will make with residencies is, um, well, I just didn't, I'm just not that comfortable after school. Well, that's too general. Right. That's way too general. Right. So what what are you looking to gain in your externship? So first off, at the externship that I'm going to be at. Um, 
there is an oculoplastics surgeon and it's mm. a since it's an od omd center um there's a lot of things that um us in optometry we don't do we don't do oculoplastics and that's fine but i think that's one of the that's a the externship i just kind of want to see um see different surgeries and different things that go on but also have some exposure to um i mean if they uh, if they allow for to do uh yags and slts pis um but more so it's for the to kind of see ophthalmology and just kind of see um what all they're doing and kind of get exposure to that aspect of it so that way whenever i um and referring patients in the future. I just kind of have an idea of what's going on. Um, I think more so the residency, the re biggest reason I'm doing a residency is because I want to be the best doctor I can be. Um, and I feel comfortable coming out. I feel comfortable right now with patients. Um, and, but I think the biggest thing is just having more uh, clinical experience. And um, I, I, I think that's one of the biggest things is just having more of an exposure to the surgery side and the medical side, because that's the portion I, I like more. I like ocular disease, and that's kind of where I, the reason why I'm doing it. Um, right now, I feel like at at uh, Oklahoma College of Optometry, I get exposure, but it's also there's so many students and only so many uh, surgical procedures and lumps and bumps and um, laser procedures that you can do. There's only so many patients that need it. Yeah. Um, I think being in a residency that completely focuses on that, I'll have the ability to do as many as I want because I want to do that in my future practice. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, so then, uh, I see, I, I've said this before on the, on the podcast, the, I see, um, just a ton of blue, blue sky for our profession. I really do. Right. Um, then I also see this other side of it where um, people are are kind of worried about private equity. They're worried about online, whatever, um, so-and-so selling this, this company buying that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what's your sense of, of all of that, and do you pay attention to it? Um, that's funny because when I first started optometry school, one of my cousins, he sent me something about like doom and gloom optometry. Mm -hmm. And I remember I kind of freaked out because I was like, first year, you kind of think, oh, my God, I'm about to go through four years. And then what happens if optometry doesn't exist? Right. Coming to these meetings, I think there's always going to be the doom and gloom people. But um, no, I think optometry, the patient doctor, I mean, the patient doctor relationship, that's not going away. And I think that's important. And I think optometry is fine um, for me personally. Every morning, um, I kind of listen to motivational music. That just mm -hmm. kind of, um, and I like the saying, "If you build it, they will come." If you do your duty as a uh, as an optometrist, as a doctor, and you're providing the best patient care, they're not going to find that anywhere Amen, else. Amen, brother. Yep. Amen. So, yep. <laughs> I'm not too worried about the doom and gloom. I think uh, I think you definitely need to adapt. I think people who are stuck in, I mean, and that's any industry. Sure. If you if you're stuck in what you're doing and you are not willing to adapt, you're not going to make it. But for people who are willing to adapt um, and provide the best possible care, I think you're going to be totally fine. Yep. Yep. I think, uh, yeah, I think that's the case. I think, you know, um, incorporating those things that you're looking to incorporate, mm -hmm. uh, advancing your training like you want to do um, and implementing that right in a real way into your practice uh, is, is you're doing it for the best interest of the patient, but right. all that other stuff winds up being noise 
because it's just not what you're doing, right? Like when, when you see those doom and gloom articles like your cousin sent you, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're, unfortunately, the perception of those articles is that optometry is a seller of glasses and contact lenses. Right, right? and that's the autorefractor was going to put us out of business. Right, right. And that was so many years ago. So. Yeah, yeah, so it's, uh, it is, um, yeah, I mean, I, most of the guys that I run around with, most of the people I know, that's just not how they practice. And right. so, um, so I think, you know, as long as we're not getting into the kind of the getting sucked into the negativity of stuff, right. then, um, then it's easy to stay above it. But I, I just, you know, I see, I do see peripherally these conversations that go on on social media. And I brought this up on the, on the podcast as well before mm-hmm. is, um, just that, you know, there, I don't need the AOA. I don't need, um, and we'll say the AOSA. Yeah. What would you say to somebody that says, you know, a thousand or fifteen hundred bucks? It's not worth it for me to be a member. What would you say to that? <laughs> um, that's actually really funny. It's from my perspective, it's kind of a bummer because a rising tide lifts all uh, boats, right? And so, but at the end of the day, it's an investment, and the, everything that the AOA is doing, everything that the AOSA is doing for students, I think it far outweighs what you're paying. Um, it seems like, oh, I'm putting in 1500 but if the AOA ceases to exist, right, let's see what you're doing tomorrow. Let's yeah. see what you're doing a year from now. Um, even uh, I've talked to people who are anti-AOA, but they say even then we still need the AOA, even right. though they recognize it, <laughs> but they just don't, I, they just don't want to pay the dues, but they're non dues paying members. Not yeah, exactly. Right. But they, they, cause I asked and you know, and that's one of those things was, so what would be, what would be the, um, like how would we advance scope or just how do we protect our profession? And they're all like, that's what you need the AOA for that. And I was like, okay, so you understand you understand that you need the AOA, but for whatever reason, just don't want to pay the Yeah, dues. what's the disconnect then? Is it that they, they think they can't afford it? I mean, or are they just like, yeah, we need the AOA, but I get the benefit either way? Is that is that sort I, of the mentality? I, I guess, and and I think it's just a bummer. If you let everybody else pull your weight, I think that's, that's just ridiculous. I feel like um, for what you're getting for yeah, putting oh in, yeah. I just don't think – um, and I haven't had to pay the dues of a, um, as a doctor. And so I, I can't speak to that, but even as a student, um, I just think knowing coming in that how much our, again, our profession is legislative based. I just don't think you can put, um, I just don't think the dues are, I, I think the dues are definitely worth what you are um, getting back in return. Yeah. I think, you know, the way I've always looked at it was there were people in our profession right. who struggled long and hard to allow me to do the things without even knowing me, without having no idea who I would be or who I am or that I would even exist. Right. They worked hard 20, 30 years ago so that I can do the things I do in my practice. So I can see the blue sky that, that is the profession. And, and for me that at the very least, like if that's all that it is, right. Mm -hmm. And and nothing else changes. That's, that's that check every year, right. It's just paying forward those that, that basically I can stand on their backs. And people, people always say, you know, uh, whenever I tell them I'm from Oklahoma, like, oh man, you guys have a great scope. And yeah. I say, it's not by accident. Yes. And it's not anything. I'm, I'm like, I'm so grateful because there was people who came before me that did all the hard work and I can only try to move that forward from here on yeah. out. But anytime people tell me that, I'm like, honestly, it's nothing to do with me, everything to do with the people. Again, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And yep. so, um, 
again, I'm super grateful for them because now the scope that we're able to have in Oklahoma, I unmatched and I just love being able to do what I can full scope. So. Yeah. So, um, so I'll wrap this up. We'll be respectful yeah. of your time so we can get back to some of the sessions. Anything that you, you want to, uh, add or, or last thoughts before, uh, before we end this? Yeah. I, I mean, I would just say optometry is a great profession. Um, I think one of the things for me, one of the coolest things, uh, or the most interesting things, uh, was recently a couple of weeks ago, um, in clinic found a patient with a pituitary adenoma. And so patient has had problems, visual problems, um, no kept going for glasses. And that was, that was the, uh, it was just glasses. Glasses was what she thought was causing the problem. Um, we'll fix the double vision and then we'll be all okay. Um, but to me, that's when I was like, wow, this profession is, it's not only glasses or contacts. We're full, like we have a medical component. Um, and I think it's important to practice medical optometry. Um, I think one of the things I heard at uh, the convention today was a lot of practitioners don't. They kind of stick to glasses contacts. Um, I think uh, I think Dr. Cockrell, whenever I was talking to him, said only about 30 to 40% even manage glaucoma and to me that's just crazy and to think that you have all of medical optometry you're able to do that and to not kind of do everything you can I just think that's uh, that's crazy so I think my advice to students um, and I guess to everybody to all practitioners is to do the best that you can in all aspects not only do just refractive but do medical optometry and just do the best for your patients Amen well Bivin Thanks for being on, brother. Thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, thanks a lot. We'll do it again. Awesome.